just remind everyone, it's a fellowship meal next week. And, um, yeah, do invite friends and family along. How many people here had um, family members that served in, well, I suppose not First World War anymore, but seconds? Family members, grandparents, grandparents. Still quite a few, still quite a few. Very good. I sent a picture off to one of my cousins yesterday of our granddad having his photograph taken in Egypt. He was part of General Montgomery's 8th Army Division. He was known as a desert rat. Uh, someone who got motorbikes, he was a reconnaissance man. And the story goes that, like all men, he needed a wee. And he went behind a bush and... Um, Big old tank turned up, so he jumped on his motorbike, rode off at top speed, and he got shot in the leg, and he kind of rather showed his hole in his leg kind of proudly. Uh, so from Egypt, he made it to Jerusalem. He said he visited the Western Wall there, which was then called the Moroccan Quarter. However, I'm sure like most of you, they didn't speak about it that much, or what happened. He rather kept it quiet and under his hat, but... Um, it's good to know there's still a few of them out there. So look, we're going to be in John chapters 12. We're going to be reading from verse 20 through verse 26. So we stand this morning for the reading of God's word. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who come up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honour. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you today as so many gather to honour those who laid down their lives. Lord, may we be mindful of those who laid down their lives as we open up this passage. Well, may you speak to every one of us afresh in your word this morning. Lord, may our hearts be settled and our minds on eternity as we turn the pages of the book of life. And Lord, we ask this, believing and trusting in the name of Jesus. God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now, yesterday technically was... Remembrance Day, and today is Remembrance Sunday, and many will gather, as they did yesterday, at London's Cenotaph. The Cenotaph stands as a symbol of remembrance. 
It stands as a symbol of remembrance of those who laid their lives down. And Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. There's no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend. Now, during World War I, there was over 30 nations involved in the conflict. In World War II, there's over 50 nations involved. These are truly, both of them, world wars. With all the colonies and everything else involved, of the British Empire as well, these were truly, the world was at war. Now, in World War I, there were 65 million volunteers or conscripts involved in the fight. In World War II, there were 70 million either volunteers or conscripts called to fight. That's a huge amount of people. I wonder if we can comprehend that today, considering the population of the world then. The total deaths of World War I was about 22 million. The total deaths in World War II is ranging between 70 and 85 million people. Now consider the population of the UK is about 77 million. Those people who were called to serve didn't start the war, okay? It's a small minority that started the war. However, these were called to serve. They were called to lay their lives down. And they were called to make a sacrifice. And so many of them volunteered to come forth to fight what would be called then the good fight. Now, the question is this. What is a sacrifice? The word so often, but what actually is a sacrifice? For this, I went to the Cambridge Dictionary. It says this. To give up something that is valuable to you in order to help another person. For me, this is too simple of an explanation. Because it says, to give up something that's valuable to you. What is valuable to people today? Maybe their money, it may be their time. For some, it would be not looking at their iPhone during Lent. Some kind of sacrifice. So I digged a little further, and I went to the Britannic Encyclopedia for the nature of sacrifice. What is the actual nature of sacrifice? Listen carefully, it says, the term sacrifice derives from the Latin word sacrificium, which is a combination of two words. The first word is sarkia, and the second word is farchuri, or farcheri, depending on how Italian you are. Now, here's the meanings. The first, sarkia means this, something that is set apart from secular use for the use of something supernatural or supernatural power. So interesting. And the second word, or second part, far cherry, is to make. Okay? So the first, sarkia means something set apart from secular use for the use of a supernatural power. 
That's the nature of sacrifice. It's some sort of renunciation or giving up of something valuable in order that something more valuable might be obtained. That's the nature of what a sacrifice is. Put simply, it's one who has been set apart, one who's been made available for the use of a supernatural power for the greater good. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 12, because there's no better verse, I believe, in the Bible which will surmise this, not only sacrifice, but the nature of sacrifice with its Christian understanding. Now, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we all know pretty well. You'll recognize it when you get there. Therefore, I'm going to read it from a slightly different translation. Paul is writing, and he says this. Romans 12, verse 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship God. So we have these three pleads of the Apostle Paul to give up your bodies, living unto God, holy, which means set apart for the use of God. Give up everything you have, your time, your money, your effort. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. But he also qualifies why. Why should we do this? He says, because of what Jesus has done for you. This is truly your reasonable and acceptable service. It's more than your time. It's more than your money. It's more than your material goods. It's you he wants. He wants you. He wants to use you for the greater good. And he also is going to endue you or us with supernatural power to accomplish the work. It's very important that we understand that we are not left alone. We hear a lot about the Father and the Son, but very little these days in churches about the true work of the Holy Spirit. The first being sanctification, being holy, being set apart, which is impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What is your relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit? We can attempt, we can read, we can grow in intellect and knowledge. But without the Holy Spirit living in us and dwelling in us richly, we will find all our efforts somewhat in vain. They will be limited. God wants us to couple with him, to partner with him, and to be yoked with him for the work that he has for him. You understand? Now, you may have picked up the Christ life. I'm not going to doubt anyone here this morning who professes Christ and makes a profession of faith. But have you put down your life? Truly. I don't want to use romantic language. For you to truly walk in the promises of God or anyone to walk in the promises and fullness of God, one must put their life down 
their own ambitions, their own desires, their own thoughts, their own hopes and dreams, that has to be laid down before you can truly pick up the Christ life and walk in the fullness of. And if you haven't done that, how far do you expect to go in your Christian walk? How far do you expect to go? Now, the message today is called Laying Down Your Life. Laying Down Your Life. So if we turn back to John chapter 12, we're going to be reading from verse 20. I kind of had a message, an outline at the beginning of the week, but kind of changed once I got into the text and prayer last night. So let's begin. John chapter 12, verse 20 says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who come up to worship at the feast, the feast being Passover. There were certain Greeks. Now, whether these were native Greeks or Greeks by Greek nationals, the point the text is making is this. These were non-Jews, okay? In the ancient world, in the Jewish world, then there was two people as far as the Jews are concerned. There's the Jews and there's the non-Jews, okay? In fact, that's no different today. If you fly to Israel, you get to the airport, Ben-Gurion Airport, and as you go through the terminals there, there's two terminals. One says the Yehudi, the Jews, and the other one says the Goyim, which is the non-Jews, the Gentiles, the nations. So nothing has really changed. And the text is pointing to that fact. However, there were people known in those days as the God-fearers. These were attracted to the Jewish faith. They were attracted to monotheism, one God, and therefore they wanted to honor this God and worship this God and find out more about this God. But they hadn't, in a sense, fully committed to this God, either by coming completely under the law or for the men, understandably, circumcision. Okay? However, I think as today is a day of remembrance, and considering what's going on in the world today, Politically, as far as war is concerned, it's very important for us to remember the Jewish roots of our faith. Christianity actually is not a word in the Bible. The word Christian is only ever used three times. Now, I want to read a little list to you, just so we get the backdrop of what you have in your hands, the manuscripts. Let me read this to you. It may be enlightening to you. Here's the Jewish roots. All 39 books of the Old Testament were written by Jewish authors. Jesus was a Jew, died a Jew, and will return as a Jew. All the, event, all the events in the Gospels, except the flight to Egypt, took place in Israel, not Palestine. Over 90% of the people portrayed in the Gospels are Israelites. All 27 books of the New Testament had Jewish authorship, except probably Luke, who was a convert to Judaism. The main instruments for planting churches and spreading the Gospels were the Jews. All 12 apostles were Jewish, 
The future city in the book of Revelation is inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The city's foundations bear the names of the 12 Jewish apostles of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. No wonder Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. This is the root of your faith, of this book. Now, those Greeks came up to worship at the feast. Now, the feast, as I said, was the Passover. This is where they remembered the bitterness of slavery and the sweetness of freedom. You can read about it in the book of Exodus. And it says that they came up to the feast to worship. And this simply means this. They made a pilgrimage. They didn't just turn up on the day. They'd been there several days before. And they would have undergone ritual purification. They'd have spent at least three days there in the mikvehs, washing and cleansing themselves before a holy feast. Now, those Greeks look in verse 21, says this. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, you can imagine. You've got these Greeks hanging around. They've been studying the word. They've been reading about the word. And they're hanging out in Jerusalem for the last two or three days. And I'm sure word had got round, as it does in Jerusalem. I've lived there. The word gets round quick about this man, Jesus. And I'm sure they would have inquired about Jesus. Well, who is he? Well, tell us about him. What has he done? Speak to us about this man, Jesus. They would have heard of all the miracles and provisions that he had done, the compassion he had on people who were found in sin and adultery and everything else. He would have been very intriguing to them. Who is this man who's raised the dead and this man who's dealing with demons? They would have heard all about it. Jerusalem then was as fascinated about Jesus as Jerusalem today is fascinated about Jesus. You want to cause a fascination? Just mention Jesus publicly. You will cause a ruckus. Imagine if I went down to London yesterday and said, it's all about Jesus. I'm sure I'd have upset everyone, apart from that weird bunch of evangelical Christians in the corner. Now, in John chapter 9, verse 22... The Pharisees have already put a warning about this man, Jesus. They said this, if anyone confessed that he was the Messiah, he would be put out of the synagogue. If anyone would have made a profession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah, promised in the scriptures long ago, they would have been thrown out of the synagogue. And if you're out of the synagogue, well, there's not much hope for you as far as religion is concerned, and probably education for your children and everything else, you would be excommunicated. Now imagine that today in the world that we're living. If a Jew was to profess Christ in a religious circle, he is excommunicated. Or a Muslim today, whether it's in the Muslim world or in England, they are more than excommunicated. Or a Hindu, a very devout Hindu, maybe living in India, would be more than excommunicated. Don't have any notion that it's all peaceful out there. Same with Buddhists. And same even in the world today with pagans or those who come out of the new age. Everything is permissible apart from this man, Jesus. Is that true? 
It certainly cause a ruckus when we mention Jesus. However, look, these Greeks are not scared. They're not worried. They're not concerned. Maybe they didn't get the warning that they're going to be excommunicated. Maybe they didn't give a monkeys. Maybe their concern was for the truth. That should always be our concern. When speaking with people, with the whole political thing that's going on, the thing is, is this, are you looking for truth? I don't know how many people are looking for truth today. The reason why we believe in Christ, the reason why I profess Christ is because I believe him to be true. In fact, I believe Jesus to be the truth, personified in a person. Now, let's have a look at this passage. Verse 22 says this. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. As we go through the scriptures, we see that Andrew has this wonderful ministry of bringing people to Jesus. This is a wonderful ministry that not only Andrew enjoys, but every one of us gets to enjoy. Simply by this, how do I do it? How can I introduce people to Jesus? Your testimony is enough. You don't have to try and prove the age of the earth. You don't have to try and prove the legitimacy of the text. But your testimony is very powerful. How Jesus came into your life, how Jesus has changed you. How Jesus has changed the way you think. How Jesus has changed the way that you feel about people or situations. How Jesus has cleared your mind. How Jesus has filled you with love for others that are sometimes not lovable. That we're dealing with somebody who's supernatural. No one can take away your testimony. You know that? Your testimony is powerful. That's why Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. You are my witnesses. And our lives are to be witnessed by others forever changing from glory to glory. Amen? Now, look at Jesus' response, verse 23. Now, Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Notice he says glorified, not crucified. I don't know if the Greeks got an audience with Jesus, but he makes this statement, The hour has come, this is my moment, where many nations have gathered in Jerusalem, for me to be glorified. Now, the reason why he didn't say crucified is because he told them three times before. Turn with me, please, then, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And we're going to read from verse 31. Now, it's headed in my Bible, I'm sure, in some of yours. This is the third time Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. Luke 18, verse 31. It says that he, Jesus, took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, pay attention to this. We are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Not may be accomplished, but they will be accomplished. 
for he will be delivered, the Son of Man, to the Gentiles, the Goyim. And he will be mocked, insulted, and spit upon. And they will scourge him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. You see, he's already set his mind about what he's going to do. You see that? Jesus had made a resolve in his heart of what he is going to do. He is no longer, in a sense, focusing on the pain and the suffering of the crucifixion, but look into the future glory or the return to the glory from where he once came. That should be our focus as believers. But look what it says, verse 34. But he understood none of those things. This same was hidden from them. At this stage, it was all hidden from them. This was all a mystery. They didn't understand the things that he was speaking at this time. You see, the suffering is part of life. And Jesus had lived long enough and seen enough to see that suffering was not going to go away. It was part of the fall. It's part of the curse. You can throw money at it. You can throw aid at it. If someone's hungry, they're gonna, you can feed them. They'll be hungry again tomorrow. There's something more that needs to be done. It's just part of our life. The Apostle James says, what is your life? What is your life? It says it's just a vapor. Your life is just a vapor. I've seen it even here. I've probably done five or six funerals since I've been here. Do you know what they all say to me? That went quick. So short, so quick. Some of them young, some of them apparently old, but not really. Is that it? Do I get a second chance? It's like a vapor. It's like the steam of a kettle. You try and grab hold of it and it's gone. It's blink. It's gone. It's over. I can't even believe I'm 46. I still think I'm 17 playing guitar with long hair. It's just not true. Time flies. What is your life? It's just a vapor. Turn me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to read verse 18 and 19. Romans 8, 18 and 19, I'm going to be reading from the NLT. Paul is writing, and he's speaking on suffering at this present age. He says this, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal in us later. Whatever suffering you go through, It's not to be even spoken about and compared to the glory that everyone will receive. The glory to us will be revealed and the glory in us shall be revealed. Then he says this, for all creation, the whole of creation is waiting eagerly for that future day, that glorious day when God will reveal who his children really are or who really are his children. The whole of creation is groaning, says the Apostle Paul. It's waiting for that glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. 
And at that stage, everything will be revealed. Your heart will be revealed. The motives of why you do what you do will also be revealed. Everything should be revealed on that day. You see, death must be decided on earth. Your death to your life must be decided while you're here. After you die, it's far too late. It's on this side of eternity we must say, your will be done and not my will. It's a decision, it's a choice that you have to make daily. We all do, amen? It's tough, but oh, well, there's suffering involved. But hold on, don't take your eyes off the glory. Jesus knew about the crucifixion. His mind was set on the glory. He knew he was going to be nailed to a cross, not for his sins, but for ours, but he was looking at the glory. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about everyone else, including those who put in the nails, including those who mocked him while he was being crucified. Can you imagine that? He's dying for the ones who are crucifying him and murdering him. He's aware of that knowledge. What would you have done? He's saying, I'm staying here for the future glory. He's looking forward to these things. There's going to be end to all of this suffering and pain and wars and corrosion and death. There's going to be an end, says Jesus. And do you know what? He's going to put an end to it. In fact, he has put an end to it. But we must enter into the glory with him. We must enter into the race with him. We must enter into the war with him. We must fight with him and alongside him. And we're not alone in the fight. The fight could be for your own soul. It could be for the souls of your fellow family members and friends. But it's just a short time. What is your life but a vapor? That's it. Just a short time. When Jesus was left behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and Mary come to get him, what did he say? Didn't you know I should be about my father's business? Oh, you're only 12 years old. What are you doing? I'm about my father's business. When Jesus was teaching, there's a knock at the door and says, your mother and brothers are here. He said, my mothers and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. See, this earthly life will soon be over. I know people say flesh and blood is thick in the water and all of this, family members. No, no, no. Your true family are those who hear the word of God and do it. And let me tell you, you're going to be spending a lot more time with them than the other ones. This is the words of Jesus. Laying down your life is not easy. Learning to say no is not easy. But this is why some don't progress. You want to progress? Lay down your life? Pick up the fullness of the Christ life. You can't have both. Maybe churches teach you can have both. The Bible doesn't teach that. Lay down your life. Lay down your life. Now listen what Jesus says, verse 24. John 12, 24. If we can grasp this, we do well. Most assuredly, I say to you, 
Lest a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Most assuredly, our man and our man, Jesus says, I say to you, unless that grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Now, what is he saying? There can be no glory without suffering. There can be no fruitful life without death. And there can be no victory without full surrender. That's what he's saying. Put simply like this. Jesus knows that unless he dies, he remains alone. But if he dies, then what? He goes off into glory. There's only so much Jesus can do on his own on the earth. He said, it's better that I go. For if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit. And greater works than these, what I do on earth, you will do. Why? Because there's many of us. But unless he dies, he can't produce that fruit. He can't produce the harvest. He can't produce the wheat. You understand? Let me just say this again. Jesus knows that unless he dies, he remains alone. His death, however, produces life. When we lay our lives down, we can be fruitful. Now, Jesus predicts his death on the cross. Let me read this to you. John chapter 12, verse 27 says, now my soul is troubled. We've got to remember that Jesus, with the hypostatic union, is both fully man and fully God, come together. The soul is troubled. I'm not surprised. He sweat blood in the garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because he's going to face a Roman cross. He's going to feel it as much as you feel it. He's going to be under the same pressure. Well, he's going to be under more pressure than anyone's ever walked the face of the earth because all the satanic kingdom is going to want him to forfeit his position. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But this is the purpose I came for this hour, is what Jesus said. It's for this Passover that I came into the world to share with you. I've come to die that you may have life and that you may have it eternally. This is why he came. And then he says in verse 32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. How is this possible? Because he has made himself known. Through the missionaries going out, through the Bible distributors going out, through evangelism going out, and for the Holy Spirit coming down. He's more powerful now than ever before on earth. Why? Because he laid down his life. Now Jesus says this, look, verse 25. We're somewhat finishing up. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Hate is a strong word and it's used deliberately to show a contrast between love and hate. What matters most in your life to you? Think about it in your mind right now. 
What matters most to you? Are you willing to lay that down for Jesus? All of it? Have it in your minds right now. What matters most? Is it your career? Is it your family? Your children? Is it your own life? What is your life? A vapor. C.S. Lewis said this. Do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. Let me say that again. Do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. Jesus finishes with this. Let's have a look in verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, follow in my wake, follow in my path, that where I am, there my servant will be also. Anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Turn me to John 15, please. is Jesus' instructions to his disciples. Not long before he is taken to a Roman cross and murdered. John 15, verse 15. Here he's calling them servants. Verse 15, he changes that. Look what he says. No longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. For all things I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. All things I've made known to you. So the disciples at one point were in the darkness. But all things have come to the light now. All things I have made known to you. And I have called you friends. Look in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. Is Jesus your friend? Will you lay your life down for Jesus? He is made known through his word, the will of the Father. Let me read what Paul said again. I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all what he has done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. He wants all of you. If we are his friends, we claim to be friends of Jesus. But we must lay down our lives, not just servant and master, but the master has made his will known to every one of us. Let me just summarize this. Will you lay down your life for Jesus in full surrender today? We're going to be having communion. It's a good time to check your heart. Am I truly living for Jesus? 
If one really wants to pick up the Christ life, one must put down the self-life in its fullness. In order to do that, it's somewhat simple. You have to remember that God is with you in all of this. You simply say this, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. The scriptures will declare that you'll be fruitful and multiply for him. Now, I was reading last night. I'm going to finish some good news. That's heavy. That's challenging. It's challenging for me. It's challenging for all of us. But I was reading last night about the cenotaph, and I want to give you a report. The cenotaph means this. The empty tomb. My report is this. If you can believe my report. I have been to Jerusalem. The tomb is empty. We say the tomb is empty together. The tomb is empty. He laid down his life that we may pick up the Christ life. The tomb is empty. The report has gone out. There's no bones in that tomb. The cenotaph stands, really, as a remembrance to Christ and all that he has done. That he laid his life down for the greater good of mankind, that we may have salvation through him. Took a while for the Apostle Paul to get this. But he finishes his epistle to the Corinthians with this. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And he was buried, and he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Amen? That's a life laid down, not for himself. When the whole world was screaming at Jesus on the cross, save yourself. And he said, no, I'm going to stay up here. I'm going to stay here, for I love these people. And I want to give everybody the opportunity to come unto me, that I may share with them the glory which I had before this time in eternity. Amen? You want to be part of that? Lay down your life for Jesus. Pick up the Christ life, for he is for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your son came and laid down his life, that we may pick up not just a a new life on earth, but an eternal life with him. Lord, To offer ourselves is only our reasonable and acceptable service. It's our true act of Christian worship. So, Lord, I pray that this message stirs the hearts of your people as we consider once again what Christ did for us, as we consider the body that was broken for us and the blood that was spilt for us, Lord. That Jesus had his face set like flint towards Jerusalem, not looking at the cross, but looking to the future and the future glory that he will share with every one of us who puts our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus. We praise you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. And we are looking and longing for that sweet time when we see you again face to face. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.